Matthew chapter 25. Let's ask God to help us, shall we? Father God, we sent some serious words, some passion with which Jesus told these stories. Lord, even an ache in his heart for those that were cast out. Lord, we ask you to help us to understand these things and respond personally and appropriately, Lord, to all that you are wanting to say to us today. Holy Spirit, help us to understand what is pertinent to us in our situation right now. Lord, individually. Lord, we are collectively your people, but we are individuals before you. Speak to us each one, we pray, in Jesus' name. Well, if you've been um, following through our series, for visitors, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel, um, more or less a chapter at a time, with one or two breaks. And uh, if you've been following with us or you're familiar with Matthew, um, you'll know that from chapter 23 onwards, the narrative becomes more grave and alarming. It's almost as if uh, there is something building to a climax. The clouds are gathering. There's much talk of destruction uh, and catastrophes, uh, death, judgment and punishment and warnings about the end of the age, which is linked to the return of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And he's coming as God's supreme judge. Uh, And we are warned that there will be a day when the secrets of men's hearts will be revealed. And we will be judged according to God's righteous judgment. His justice will be done. And we see from those parables even that some will be welcomed into God's eternal kingdom and some will be cast into outer darkness. Let me ask you, how does that make you feel? Do you want to hurry on and turn over the next page and think, well, let's have something that's a little more palatable? Does it make you feel a little uneasy? All this darkness, this talk of destruction and punishment. Perhaps it should, if only for the earnestness, the passionate earnestness with which uh, Jesus spoke and warned about these things in parables particularly. And do you notice that so many of the characters in the parables were surprised that they were not welcomed into God's kingdom but were cast into outer darkness? There's that surprise about them. They thought things were okay, but when it came to it, um, they were not. A lot of the parables, of course, were aimed at the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, of the law and it got to a point when they knew it and of course they became even more incensed and determined to do away with him. Uh, Perhaps one of the most devastating judgments on them came when Jesus said, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. They felt they were And of course they were, God's chosen people, a very privileged people. All the promises that God had made would be fulfilled through them. And now they're being told, because they've rejected the Messiah, because they've rejected Jesus, 
all that blessing is going to go to somebody else. And of course that really incensed them. And then in chapter 23, uh, he openly accuses them of hypocrisy. Do you remember the film uh, then, a few weeks back now? Jesus is on the temple steps, all the scribes and Pharisees, they're receding backwards and he's calling out to them, You hypocrites! You teachers of the law, Pharisees, you're hypocrites. And so serious was it, he said, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? No wonder steam was coming out of their ears. Imagine when when you get spoken to like that. He called them hypocrites, which means play acting. A hypocrite is someone who play acts. They were all show on the outside, but inside they were full of corruption. And you remember he said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're all lovely and pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and full of corruption. Well, I don't know about you, but in any story, when the baddies get it in the neck, it's kind of satisfying, isn't it? All right? It's kind of good. When their sins are revealed, when their hypocrisy is revealed, when they get their just deserts, Uh, It kind of feels good in any story. That's part of storytelling, isn't it? To expose expose the baddies. But whether these Jewish leaders were deceived or not, their hypocrisy was gross and obvious. But what about us? Is there any hypocrisy? Are we in any way deceived? Worst of all, will we be surprised on that last day that we are not welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. Is there any doubt about it in your mind? In chapter 23, Jesus is clearly addressing the Pharisees and teachers of the law. But from chapter 24 and into 25, he's actually talking to the disciples. Um, Maybe about other people, but he's talking to them uh, through parables, talking about people and probably referring firstly to the Jews, but obviously to others, who thought they were okay, thought they were ready, and thought they were prepared for the Master's return. But when that day came, they were surprised to be shut out. I can remember some years ago, we had a package holiday in Greece. And you know what it's like, package holidays? They pick you up from the hotel to go home about two o'clock in the morning. The coach, it's all dark, we all trundle into the coach, and we make our way to Athens airport. It's been improved since, but it was absolute chaos when we got there. People everywhere, still dark. Anyway, the courier, she said, who's for Gatwick, okay? In that queue there, just, just form up here. And now we're outside the, the terminal building, we're not inside, but there's a queue, an orderly queue. She said, you'll be okay, that's the queue for Gatwick. So we're waiting, we're waiting and looking at our watches. And we're thinking, wow, it's got to move soon, we're never going to get there. It goes on and on and we're really getting worried about it. Anyway, the guy in front of us, he had the presence of mind to go into the terminal building and he comes down, come on everybody, come on, come on, we're in the wrong queue, we're in the wrong queue. And when we get in the terminal building, there's a big space, you know, no queue and there's, there's our flight up on the, uh, on the check-in. And when we get there, we get told off. Where have you been? We said, we were told to be there. We were told. Anyway, fortunately, we did get on the, on the plane. But there were some who didn't. There was a couple, weren't there, Joe, who we realised actually uh, didn't get on the plane. We're in the wrong queue. 
Well, our title today is Ready for Jesus' Return? Question mark. Safe and secure for the day of judgment. That will come up in a minute. I'll keep going. Being ready, ah, being ready for Jesus' return, being safe and secure for the day of judgment is not a lottery. It's not something we have received by chance. It's not a guessing game. It's not a total mystery. God has told us how to be safe and secure on the day of judgment. Listen to what the Apostle John says. This is from John, 1 John 4.17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. So it is possible to have confidence on the day of judgment. No matter how terrible it is, no matter how awesome it is, it is possible to have confidence on the day of judgment. And it seems to be something to do with having love being made complete among us. And we know that this is God's love. This is God's love to be made complete among us so that we can have confidence. So that we're absolutely sure we're not waiting in the wrong queue. Because we might be. Any, Any here might be waiting in the wrong queue, thinking everything's fine, but actually it's not. But John says we can have confidence. We don't want to be those who are living in a fool's paradise, as they say. So, what is it? Well, we're going to have a look in chapter 25. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these parables because we want to look at all three, but to see what we can learn from that about God's love and how we can be safe and secure. So, these parables, remember the wise and foolish girls, virgins, if you like, unprofitable servant and the sheep and the goats. At first glance, these parables uh, might seem as if we are saved by works. All these people were um, missing the, 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 the ultimate blessing because they didn't do something. You know, being, um, didn't store up the oil or weren't industrious with the money or weren't generous to the less fortunate. This is surprising really because we know as evangelical Christians that we are saved by God's grace, not by works. It's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So, how about this? It's not earned or deserved, but it seems to be a little bit from these parables. Well, what we need to always appreciate with the parables of Jesus is that he's usually making one point, and they're they're called parables because they're parabolic, all right? All the story around it. Okay, it's just helping us understand this one point. And although we can draw out more than one lesson from any parable, he is usually making one point. And we mustn't get bogged down in the details and miss this one point that he wants to get across. And I want to say to you that the bottom line of each of these stories, the main point that is being made that emerges at the end, um, they're all more or less the same. It's all more or less the same and it relates to the essence of the gospel. And although we can learn something about how to behave as Christians from these parables, the ultimate issue is clearly salvation. 
We can learn some things as Christians and apply them, but it is clearly salvation because we have foolish virgins locked out from the bridegroom's presence, uh, from the wedding banquet. We have a servant thrown into the darkness and we have those separated as goats from sheep cast out away to eternal punishment. We'll look at each briefly and identify the bottom, bottom line issue and then remind ourselves, and it's so important that we do, how in spite of the awesomeness and the terror that this great and wonderful day of the Lord will be, that we can have the confidence to be and know that we're absolutely safe and secure, destined to share in the joy of our Master in his eternal kingdom. So let's look at the first one, the wedding. Um, for us Westerners, um, it's not a familiar scene, is it? The context we don't fully understand. It's not like weddings that, that we've probably been to. But apparently, um, uh, it's um, not unusual or uncommon for um, a Middle Eastern wedding to be rather like this, even today. And many of the features, it, they occur at night, and many of the features uh, would be the same. The bridegroom uh, was not expecting to marry ten virgins, incidentally. Now, these girls would be accompaniments to the bride. And um, they would have their lamps and they would light the way for the procession. They were a bit like bridesmaids. And, of course, they would enter in with the bride uh, into the wedding festivities. But um, we don't really need to concern ourselves with too much detail, but the question we must ask is, what caused five girls to be excluded from the wedding banquet? Because five were. Five entered in, but five uh, were excluded from this banquet, which represents the kingdom of God. Well, here are some key points which are worth noting. They all look the same. You could not distinguish between these girls until the final hour. They all had lamps, they all looked the same, but there was a difference when the final hour came. Going to sleep was not a problem. You know, they're not, they didn't miss things because they went to sleep. Now, to be prepared for Jesus' coming, to be ready, doesn't mean that we've got to stand at the window and abandon all our activities and keep looking. No, we, we can be prepared, but get on with life. We can get on with the things that God has told us to do. So falling asleep was a natural thing to do. The bridegroom was delayed. So that's not a problem. And then thirdly, what the foolish lacked could not be obtained from others. They wanted to get oil from the others because they hadn't taken their own and they were refused quite naturally because the, girls said we won't, the other girls said we won't have enough for ourselves. So we, the foolish lacked what could not be obtained from others. Very often people ask the, what seems to be an obvious question, what does the oil represent? You know, people would love to know what this oil represents. It looks like something needs to be stored up, doesn't it? Uh, could it be good works? Could it be good deeds? Like spiritual disciplines, like reading the Bible and praying. Uh, can we store that? Can we store up some credit with God right, by doing these things? Financial giving or serving faithfully in the church. But Jesus makes it clear that it's not a failure to do these things that will cause us to be shut out from the kingdom. Because no one of these things, however well we do them, can qualify us. We, it cannot qualify us. Because it is by grace that we've been saved. If you just think about it, if it were, if it were these things that we should do, and, and don't 
get me wrong, these things are very good for Christians to be doing. All those things are the right and proper things that we should be doing. But they're not issues of salvation. If there were, could we have the confidence that John was talking about it? We will have confidence on the day of judgment. Now even if we ticked all the boxes, yes, I've done that. I've done that, 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 that's what I'm supposed to do, that, that. Yeah, I've done that, but have I done enough? Have I done enough of this, enough of that? Have I prayed enough? Have I read the Bible enough? And of course, that we couldn't have confidence because we'd never know whether we've done enough. No, the story is just a way of asking, are you prepared to meet Jesus? So, how can we be sure that we're prepared? If, you look at, if you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 12. Here is the crucial issue. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. He didn't say, I tell you the truth, you haven't got enough oil or whatever it was. He said, the truth is, I don't know you. So it's not about good deeds, it's about our relationship to Jesus. It's about being genuine family members. It's about knowing God and being known by him in a very special way. In the beginning of John's Gospel, we read this. It's talking of Jesus and it says, He came to that which was his own. That's, he came to the Jews. He was a Jew coming to Jews. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. They did not recognise him as the Messiah. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The relationship comes by receiving Jesus as Lord and Saviour and having that wonderful transformation by the Holy Spirit that's referred to as being born again. So it's about relationship. And uh, we made the point, didn't we, this is, it can't be a second-hand thing. This is not a second-hand Relationship. The foolish girls could not borrow from the others. Now, our church is a wonderful place. It's the place that God has made possible for us to grow and mature uh, and uh, a place from which we can evangelise the world. It's a wonderful place, but we cannot ride on the saving faith of others. It's no good saying, I'm in a church where, yes, the, the people are saved, therefore I must be saved. We can't, we can't ride on the faith of others, not in the church, not in our family, husband, wife, or otherwise. It's to do with our personal standing before God. Our preparation, our readiness must be personal. Joining in with others who are ready will not do. There is no salvation by association. It is very, very personal. In Luke 13 we read, Someone asked him, that's Jesus, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able, able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, he will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. A bit like the girls, wasn't it, at the wedding. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. Uh, how easy it is to say that. Well, we've been around, we've been to church, you know, we've sung some hymns, we've done this. Surely we're okay. No, he says, that's not good enough. 
but I will t- he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. I can tell you definitely, around the world, there are those in churches, maybe even here, possibly fully involved in church life, fully involved in church life, looking like everyone else, and the Lord will say at the last day, I never knew you. I never knew you. Do you remember, uh, going back a a few weeks, uh, when Anthony was here, um, we were in um, chapter 13, and um, one of the parables that he didn't speak on was the wheat and the weeds. It's just a story that Jesus tells of how the farmer sowed wheat, but the devil comes along and he sows weeds. Uh, And the reapers wanted to pull up the weeds straight away. And he says, let both grow together until the harvest. And then when the harvest comes, the reapers can go in, gather up the weeds, throw them into the fire, and then the the wheat can be gathered into the barn. So there's this delay. There's this delay before the day of reckoning comes, as it were. Here's a really important point here. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their obvious hypocrisy, and we say, yes, get them, Jesus, get them. You got them. But the, the, the truth is that those whom Jesus does not know will, will um, experience the same fate. They will share the same fate. In all these parables, the people thought they were safe. They were actually in the wrong queue. They even referred to uh, God as Master, Sir, Lord. And Jesus describes such in Matthew chapter 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So what is this will of the Father? Isn't that working for God? Isn't that trying to do things for him? Well, fortunately, earlier in the chapter, Jesus tells us. He says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who looks to the Son recognises that this is God's saviour and that they need him and that they welcome him into their lives. They are the ones that are safe on the day of judgment. And Jesus won't say to them, I never knew you, because that is the way that he knows them. The second parable, parable of the talents. That was kind of graphically expressed there, wasn't it? We, we might well say, surely this parable is about making the most of the gifts and abilities that God has given us. And there is a truth there, of course. We will be held accountable as Christians for our stewardship of the things that God has given us. Otherwise, other, other than it could be means in this life, resources, or it could be gifts and so on. Um, in this particular story, the, a talent, it's a weight of money. And I think we've kind of pinched it for our English language and made it refer to gifts and so on. It's the things that God gives us. And as Christians, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for these things. But 
This parable is not about that. It is clearly about salvation because the wicked servant right, doesn't just not get his reward, he is cast into outer darkness. Uh, so why? Well, again, the immediate application is the wicked of the wicked servant. He represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They were the custodians of the privileges that God had given to Israel. They were the ones that, that, that needed to administer that for the benefit of the people. They had the law of Moses, they had the temple, which represents God's presence. They had been given wonderful promises as how God was going to bless this nation and through this nation bless all the nations of the world. But what did they do? They kept it for themselves. They buried it in the ground. They buried it in the ground. And... Uh, they fossilized it for themselves. They had totally misunderstood the master's generosity. God's generosity was not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. So what about us? Well, let's look at the man's attitude and see what we may learn from it. He has a religion of playing it safe. Understand that? He's going to play it safe. He's concerned only with not doing the wrong thing. He does not know his, his master, that he is generous and someone who rewards faithful service in order that he may share in his happiness. There is no relationship at all, no expectation of fruitfulness, only a life of nervously trying to keep the rules. There are Christians, so-called, and that's for them. They see Christianity as just a set of rules um, that they must, must uh, obey. They've got to keep their nose clean. There's a number of things that each week they must do in order to please God, in order to, to be satisfying God. Uh, and um, sadly, it's because they don't know him. They don't know him. Truly, knowing Jesus and being known by him sets us free from the tyranny of rules and the fear of condemnation for not keeping them. That's truly knowing Jesus. It sets us free to joyfully serve our master and live fruitful and productive lives for him. Phil Moore, who's written, written a recent commentary um, on Matthew, amongst others, he says this, The master does not throw the lazy servant into outer darkness because he is lazy. His laziness is an external symptom of the, of the same internal problem. The servant has a false view of his master, which he uses to justify his lack of devotion. He has many excuses for not using his talent, but his master sees through them all. Those who truly know the Lord work hard for him, and they work hard for him, and they receive his reward as good and faithful servants. Those who refuse his commission simply reveal that they don't really know him at all. So the issue again. Again, the, the issue of whether people are uh, welcomed into God's kingdom or, or cast into outer darkness is to know the Lord. Do they know the Lord? Lastly, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus again calls himself the Son of Man. This is a favourite title that he has given himself. And he is the judge and the one to whom all people need to respond in order to be declared righteous. In the Middle East, um, if you've seen pictures, you'll know that sheep and goats look very similar, not like it is in this country. So this is about the judgment of those who up to this point have been mixed up together, just like the bridesmaids. 
the girls, the virgins, as they're, they're called. You couldn't tell the difference. Like the wheat and the weeds kept till the time of judgment. The criterion for judgment is not people's attitude to Israel or the law, but their treatment of Jesus' brothers. You remember he uses this word. People either did good to Jesus' brothers or they neglected Jesus' brothers. And when he talks about the nations, he means all the people in the world, all the people in the world. So the, the big question is, who are Jesus' brothers that we are supposed to do good to in order uh, that it may be done to Jesus. Who are Jesus' brothers? Well, popularly, my brothers ha- has been used to describe anybody in the world who is in need. People who are facing hunger or deprivation or injustice, they have been referred to as Jesus' brothers. And verse 40 has become a charter for many Christian relief organisations as much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, of course, we have an obligation as Christians uh, to look out for those who are in need. Angela reminded us of, of that last week. We are to minister to the poor. We are to bring relief to the suffering. That's part of, of, of who we are as God's people. But whether or not we help the poor is not an issue of salvation. Okay? It may be an issue of judgment, upon us because we have not used our resources well but it is not an issue of judgment so what did Jesus mean by my brothers well without exception in the New Testament elsewhere in scripture Jesus uses the term only when referring to his natural brothers that is other sons of Mary or his disciples it isn't used generally of mankind so it's very specific what Jesus is saying here. So what is he saying? What's what's he trying to get across here? Jesus is saying that I am so united with my people, with my disciples, with those who put their trust in me, that to help them is to help me, uh, and to neglect them is to neglect me. There is a a wonderful mystery here that is the apostles, particularly Paul, tries to give us some understanding to. This unity that Jesus has uh, with himself and his people. And the apostle says that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. There is something very, very special uh, about that relationship. Jesus has identified with us. He's become a human being and he's died our death. He's taken the punishment for our sin. Uh, and in exchange, he's given us his righteousness that we might be fit to be in his family and fit to be in heaven to receive eternal life. And there is this unity which the Bible tries to explain, but it is a mystery, but it is a truth, and we need to just grab hold of that. The writer to the Hebrews describes people becoming Christians as Jesus bringing many sons to glory. And then it goes on to say, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And that would include sisters, of course. He is not ashamed because they're of one family. We are one family with Jesus. This is illustrated by the incident that we can read about in Acts chapter 9. Um, this is now when the, after the church is born and the, the church has been scattered, but there is persecution. And Saul, who later became the apostle Paul, 
He's a Pharisee and he thinks he's doing God a favour by persecuting the Christians and he's gathering them up and putting them into prison in various places and probably was responsible for the death of some of them. And he's on his way to Damascus to get letters of authority to go and do the same thing there. And he's apprehended on the Damascus road, a blinding light, and he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul answered. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. So Saul would have thought, well, I'm, I'm not, I've not touched Jesus. No, but you've touched his people. You've touched the apple of his eye, and therefore you are persecuting him. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, He who receives me, sorry, he who receives you, receives me, and he who receives me, receives the one who sent me. So we are that wonderfully, wonderfully joined to Jesus. And, and that's, the, that's why Jesus can say, if you've done it to them, then you've done it to me. Remember, with all these parables, it's not the behaviour that is the ultimate problem. Right? There could have been problems with the behaviour, but rather that they may be a symptom of the lack of relationship with God. These are just symptoms of a lack of relationship, which alone will determine whether we are safe on the day of judgment. That's the issue, being safe. The Apostle John, he kind of drives this home with a very stark statement. He says, anyone who says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does...